Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 11 and 12, and the last time that we came together for Nehemiah, we looked at the title was Commitment, Commitment. And a lot of people have trouble with that word. You know, it's, it's fast-paced in the Northeast. This is how we roll in New Jersey, to, to commit to one other thing. But I have to put things into perspective. This is God that we're speaking about. You know, this isn't another commitment for a club or a social club or whatever. This is the Lord, right? Commitment means follow-through. And as believers, we need to, if we do commit to something, we really need to follow through with what we say we're going to commit to. Uh, this morning, the message name is sacrifice. Another hard word for some. Sacrifice is to give something up, maybe something up of value for someone that you love. You know, we sacrifice for spouses, we sacrifice for our kids. And again, this is, you know, in context of Nehemiah, we're talking about sacrifice for God. You know what I'm saying? I mean, gee, he sent his son into the world to die for our sins. What an awesome thing that if we believe in Jesus, we would not perish but have everlasting life. He made the ultimate sacrifice. His son made the ultimate sacrifice. And for God to ask us to sacrifice a little bit of our time or some of the, you know, some wiggle room so that we can have a better relationship with him, that's a great thing. Uh, we, in context with Nehemiah, we looked at the children of Israel, and they sacrificed a lot. As we go through this, we'll see that they sacrificed their lifestyles. Uh, they sacrificed a lot of things. They, there's this big revival that went on, and they, they revived this great ministry of God. And a lot of things had to change. And I can tell you something, there's another word. So, so what do we cover? So you, some of you are like, listen, I'm going to walk out, Pastor Joe. Too many words that I don't like, right? Commitment, sacrifice, and then change, right? So these words lead to the word change. And I know for me, I like routine. I really do. A, a really quick funny story is um, a few months ago, I sent my computer out, and I didn't back up my, my files. And you know where this is going. So I sent it out to get the fan fixed because it was making this noise and I didn't want the thing to fry on me. They, they lost it. They completely lost my computer. So everything, my wedding templates, my funeral templates, my communion, <laughs> a lot of groans, right? All of my messages, gone. But you know, I like to look at things in a positive way and I say to myself, you know what? Maybe God wants to breathe some fresh, a fresh work into my life. You know, as I go through, my lifestyle now changes because as I do communion and I do weddings and stuff, I got to come up with stuff all over again. Uh, so here you want to laugh again. So I, they gave me this brand new computer in the last storm. Uh, I think it was the low volts that, that voltage that killed it. And uh, I got to be careful not to use brand names, so I'm not going to. Uh, but I, I go to, <laughs> to send the computer out to fix it. And guess what? They... It's the same carrier, and they, they, they smash the touch screen. They destroy the screen, and it's been two weeks, so I've lost everything again. And I'm like, what are you trying to tell me, Lord? But I'm going to tell you something. It's personal. I'm a creature of habit, just like you are. I don't like change. I hate that. But I, I also trust my Lord, and he takes me through areas that are uncomfortable for me. But I do it because I love him and because I trust him. For nobody else except for my wife... Would I do something like that, but I, I'm 
pushed into this situation where I... So, so we go, we look at the children of Israel, we see what they went through. And I got to tell you that some of Western Christianity is aberrant in the fact that, especially with the prosperity gospel, they'll never tell you to sacrifice. You know, I mean, they'll tell you that you just got to keep pushing God and, you know, saying it over and over again. And, and God's got to give you these things. He has to bless you. And again, I've listened to a lot of these, ooh, I, I agonized through some of these sermons, listening to it, and there's just not some things I don't hear. I don't hear about sin, I don't hear about the blood of Christ, I don't hear about judgment. And one of the things I don't hear is that we need to sacrifice our, our things in our lives, and it grows our character for the sake of our relationship with God, but you won't hear that in that teaching, and that's why it's such a popular teaching to American culture, because it's in line with this idea that in America we can have everything, and we got to look through the glasses of the scripture and stop looking through the glasses of American culture, and that's my, one of my jobs that I need to do. So uh, the next two sermons will be, will be out of Nehemiah, and then we'll be jumping into Philippians, and we'll see what God has to say for us, and that's a great book. So uh, join with me in that as well. So let's jump in. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to read every single name. There's a lot of ledgers, there's a lot of lists here. Um, I'm going to reference them, but I'm not going to read every single one of these difficult names. So starting with verse 1, it says in chapter 11, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to dwell in Jerusalem. So they're trying to get people to habitate Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So what's going on here in context? Well, again, this is historical. This is 5th century B.C. You can look up any history book. You can find it. There's no dispute. History is history. Okay, um, if you really want to find the truth, you can find the truth. Biblical, extra-biblical, they're both in line with each other. So basically, at this point of time, the Jerusalem walls are up, the gates are up, the temple is up, um, but the economy is still shaky. There's still ruins, the city is sparsely populated, and it's also the least safe out of all the cities because of all the threats from the, from the Jerusalemites, so, so to speak, their neighbors. And what they did was they casted lots, almost like draw, drawing a straw. You know, you do the straw thing, and yeah, I got the short straw, I got to go. Because not everybody wanted to go and populate the city. So the ones who, you know, they, they took a tenth of the, of the men and sent them back into Jerusalem to raise their families there. And as a result, they were blessed. You know, the inhabitants were so happy to see these families coming back into the city. Oh, there's life back in the city. This is a great thing. Again, it's really great to have the outside. Same thing I say this with the church. It's great to have buildings. It's great to have, you know, concerts and events. But what's going on on the inside of the hearts of the people? Where are we? You know, are we really committed to the Lord? Are we really responding? Are we really following His will? Or is it just window dressing? So this took a special type of person. Uh, I've, heard the, I've heard pastors use this term today even. It's called a pioneer spirit or an adventurous spirit. You know, remember when when Jerusalem was at its peak and there was the hustle and bustle and everything was great before everything collapsed, before the Babylonians came and invaded and such, uh, there was no shortage of volunteers, but now there was. Now, remember, this is a ministry of God, so we can easily make the parallel today. See, this is where we have to push aside the false lens of sometimes Western Christianity that everything has to be glamorous and big because that's not the case. 
Zechariah 4.10, quote, it says, For who has despised the day of small things? End quote. In other words, it's not a good thing to despise small things. God works in the big and he works in the small. He works in the masses and he works in the individuals. And Jesus Christ, I submit to you, did his best work when he worked with individuals. So let me just give you a personal note and then kind of expand this a little bit. I came from, I got saved at a mega church, a very large church, and everything's done for you. And there's so many ministries, and who would want to leave that? I mean, they can get the best speakers and concerts and all this kind of stuff. And we, those of us who had a calling on our lives, we would talk about the term we would use is that, you know, leaving the nest. It's like the eaglets who were pushed out of the nest, and they got to start flapping their wings and kind of flying on their own. Uh, and some of us left the nest, and some did not leave the nest. And I believe in disobedience, because there was the comforts, there was the comfort zones, there was the creature comforts. And we can get caught up with this in the church, you know. Uh, not everybody's willing to step out in faith, faith to go to do a difficult ministry or an unpopular work or a dangerous ministry. I mean, seriously. So who wants to hear? Who wants to go to, you know, next month? Go to Chicago. Well, people are getting murdered every weekend in Chicago. I've got to be honest with you, if you did decide to do that, I would support you. Because that, because especially in the harshest place, you know, war-torn areas, and we do have missionaries in, in the inner city. We have them in um, war-torn areas. We have some of them that are in uh, quasi-ISIS territory uh, because it's important. But, you know, there, there are others that just, wherever they go, and if it's for God, so to speak, it's got to be comfortable. You know, always going to a, a, maybe a missions field that's a, a resort-like or a vacation-like area. You know, there, there is no real sacrifice. It's always something that keeps them in this bubble of comfort. You know, I hear a lot of people, too, who, boy, how many people leave New Jersey, especially in our church? You know, every year we lose dozens of families. They go, go to the Bible Belt or down south, and they, they want to encourage everybody to come down here, all Christians. Well, then who's going to give the gospel in New Jersey? I know, I know. I hear about Southern hospitality, and I hear these interviews. I've never been down south, but you go to the store, and you say hello, and you're expecting someone to say hello back. It's just this kind of thing. In New Jersey, you say hello to a stranger, and they look at you suspiciously. You know, this is new. It's like a different world. What are you looking at? I'll cut you. You know what I'm saying? So I get it, you know, but somebody's got to be here to do the hard work. Um, but I'm just, listen, this is in our flesh. <laughs> we always want to be in a comfort zone. We do. It's just human nature. Who really wants to go out and do something difficult? But sometimes God calls us to go out and do something difficult. And it was no different here in Jerusalem. You know, I mean, today, sometimes a Christian, the attitude is, well, you want me to do something, God? Well, make it palatable. Sweeten the pot for me. Well, that didn't happen with Isaiah. It certainly didn't happen with Jeremiah, and it didn't happen with Zechariah, and a whole host of other prophets and men of God. Sweeten the pot. You know, Isaiah 6, he sees the, the vision of the living God. He sees the, the seraphim with the six wings, and God, and his train, and, and he's like, well, I'll do whatever you want. And I submit to you, the closer we get to God, the more we're willing to do anything for him, because we see his goodness, we see his holiness, we see his grandiosity, and we see that nothing on the earth matches his glory. You know what I'm saying? And his love. A few quick points before we move on. We talked uh, two Sundays ago about tithing. Tithing money. Back then they tithed livestock. They tithed their harvest. They were an agrarian and bartering society. Here they tithed people. 
They said, we're going to take 10%. We're going to send them back to Jerusalem. It's kind of cool. They tithe people to God's city to repopulate it. Number two, the city needed inhabitants in order to bear fruit. They needed police. They needed, to, they needed military. They needed watchmen on the walls. They needed protection. If the enemy saw there was nobody watching, it would be an opportunity for them to come in and invade. They need priests and Levites and assistants. They need families to raise children and populate the city. They needed people to do repair and maintenance. They need teachers, doctors, workers, leaders, and builders. They needed all types of people to do this. You know, it reminds me of my beehives. I love raising bees. I'm learning so much about <laughs> insects. But God is this microcosm that he's made in the beehive. It's a reflection of society. You know, in the beehive, the, as a novice beekeeper, I would look at the hive and I would say, well, gee, they need more honey to get through the winter or they'll die in January and February. That was only part of the equation. They needed bees. See, because when you open up the hive, you have all kinds of bees. You have mortuary bees, you have guard bees, you have foragers, you have nurse bees, you have all kinds of bees in this bustling community, and they all work together to keep the hive alive. It's a community. And only weird people like me who are beekeepers can understand this. When you see the queen, oh, she's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. Ask my wife. I'm like, oh, she's so beautiful. Because they all look the same, except for the males. They're a little chunkier and fuzzier, and they don't sting. But the queen is huge, and she's got this huge abdomen, and she's just beautiful. And she just stands out. There's only one queen in each hive. When you see her, let me tell you something. It's <laughs> some, some people are like, I'm not coming back next time. This guy's out of his mind. I don't even know where I was, but it got enraptured with the queen. Anyway... Anyway, well, everybody's awake this morning. That's a good thing. Anyway, you need, you need this community. You need, and, and I can tell you something, um, you can, some, some beekeepers open up their box in, in March and April and there's all this honey and the bees are all dead because the queen didn't lay enough eggs. There wasn't enough bees to populate the hive. There wasn't enough bees to keep the queen warm, to, to overwinter and to, to generate heat throughout the community. Amazing, isn't it? So I tell you what, the, the more I learn about the bees, the more I just become, I think, wiser. Uh, verses 3 through 21, I'm not going to read all these names, but I do want to point out a few things from this list. And, and again, you can read it on your own, and it basically talks about the resettlement within Jerusalem. Uh, but verse 6 stands out to me. It speaks about these valiant men. Now, if you look up the original word, valiant men means brave fighting men. And we, we know this, if we're students of the Old Testament, you know, these warriors who would go and defend the honor and defend the city and defend the innocent it was a great thing. But brave fighting men also meant men of substance. They weren't just warriors, but they were men of character. And I'm going to tell you something. I think that in American culture, if you're a pastor and you're not alarming or you're not sounding the alarm to your flock about what's going on in our country and the culture, you're not doing your job. You're not worth your salt. I'm going to tell you something. I think we're losing our valiant men in society. I mean, w what are our leaders like today? I see our leaders as weak, as shallow, celebrity types, indecisive, corrupt, you know, elitists who pretend to be populist. A lot of them are liars, brash. And it's a, it's a sad thing. And I think America is struggling because we're losing that. that and, and we're not discipling them either. And, and also, what does that say about the church? What does it say about our young men? 
in the church? Are we developing men of character? Are, are we discipling the young men? Do the young men want to be discipled? Right? That's, that's important. Because society's ills will always spill over into the church. Right? What are our young men doing? And then you hear the complaint that, well, women are just too independent and, they're, and they're, they're angry and they're stressed. And, well, maybe the fault lies with some of the Christian men. Men, what are we doing? Are we leading our families? If we put our wives and our daughters and women in society, especially Christian women, in roles that, are, that we should be bearing that burden, well, don't be surprised when they start to change. And I'm not blaming all men, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad thing to watch. Radical Islam hates us and they despise us because they see our society as weak and decadent. And they see opportunities to attack Western culture. And maybe in some ways they're right. I don't agree with their theology, obviously. I don't agree with the way they carry things out. Uh, I believe that they're, they're inspired by demonic forces. But they, they thrive on weakness. They're parasites. So don't be surprised that if we don't change, that we're not gonna have, we're not gonna see, we are going to see more attack. It's not going to go away anytime soon. Things have to change. It's just, a, it's just the eroding of our culture. Verse 22, we continue on. It says, Also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. For it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers, a quota day by day. Pedathiah, the son of Meshazabiel of the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all the matters concerning the people. Now when we look at that, what we find is that the Persians, remember, they were operating the Israelites under Persian domination. Right? 539 B.C., Cyrus comes, right? Darius the Mede, the Medes and the Persians team up, they take over the Babylonian kingdom, and Israel is still not strong enough to fight them off, so they acquiesce now to this new dominating force. However, the Bible speaks very favorably about the Persians. You know what Persia is today? Modern-day Iran. And it's so sad because the Persians really supported the Jews and the Christians for many years until the Islamic Revolution of 1979. And then things changed for the worse. Now the mullahs are in charge. And you see, Iran is in the news a lot. So it's amazing how you can watch the morphology, how things change. Uh, and I, I tell you what, I love to be a student of the history and geography because it really awakens us to, to understand things, especially as we look at the, the last battles and how all the nations line up to fight against God's people and then how the Lord intervenes. And we can see, if we look at a map of the world, how all these countries are lighting up. Maybe it might have been insignificant before, but in the last few years they've awakened and in, a, in a negative way. So I really believe the Lord's coming back soon. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. So verses 3 to 21 speak about the resettlement inside Jerusalem. 25 through 36, and again more names, is the resettlement outside of Jerusalem. We move on to chapter 12. Um, so as we go through, again I'm referencing these. Now see, in the beginning of Nehemiah it was really cool and there was no, you know, there was uh, so many applications. You know, every verse you read had a great application. Now we're moving, remember this is a government document. This is Nehemiah. He's an agent of the king of Persia. He's writing down. He's chronicling. He's taking notes. He's, there's registers. There's censuses. There's other documents. And there's also genealogy. He, he, he includes the bloodline of the priests and the Levites. 
So some guy just couldn't come in and say, hey, I'm a priest, I want to do this. No you, no, you don't. You need to prove that you're a priest. God took that very seriously. What's amazing today is in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, it says that there are no more priests. Uh, some religions still use them, but God was very clear. Jesus was that last high priest. He was the, the one who did the sacrificing, and he was also the sacrifice for our sins. He did both roles. He fulfilled those roles in the Old Testament. And it said he only had to do this once. And his, his sacrifice on the cross for our sins was so perfect that the priesthood was pretty much nullified after that. So you'll probably hear more about that on Wednesday night too when the, uh, the MRM comes out to speak as well. But just to throw one thing in here really quick for those of you that either like apologetics or maybe you're not convinced. If you look, go, go home and look up elephantine papyri, and I could go through dozens of these, the Elephantine papyri were 175 documents. They're not biblical. They're extra biblical, outside of the Bible. They're secular, right? 175 documents traced back to the 5th century B.C. on the Egyptian border. And basically what they tell us is that they tell us about Israel and Egypt and, and these countries and how they interacted and the names they used. They basically, the Elephantine papyri uh, reinforce biblical history. You know, I was always so big, and I still am on science. I love to win people to Christ and the naysayers and God doesn't exist. I love to use science, but I'm actually finding myself lately really enjoy using history. Well, how did they know this? Well, how did this get printed before this happened? Well, this is prophecy. Well, how did, you know, you either believe a prophet knows stuff beforehand because God gave him the information or you don't, but look what happened. Look how God was able to change things and alter outcomes of wars and such. Pretty impressive. It's all there in these documents, Elephantine Papyri. Verses 22 through 28, I'll read that. So we're in chapter 12 now. It says, During the reign of Darius the Persian, okay, and we, we talked about this in the book of Daniel and such, a record was also kept of the Levites and the priests who had been heads of their father's houses in the days of Eliashib, Joeda, Jehonan, and Jadua, the sons of Levi, the heads of the father's houses until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. And the heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers across from them to praise and give thanks, group alternating with group, according to the command of David, the man of God. Madaniah, Bekbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Echab were gatekeepers keeping the watch at the storerooms of the gates. These lived in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, the scribe. Now, there's a lot of crossover between this book and Ezra. Right? Ezra uh, goes back and helps to rebuild the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, does a... You know, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah were the main three players that kept coming back from the Persian government to breathe life into, into Jerusalem, into God's city. You know, the, there was spiritual reforms, there was the temple building, and then there was the, the walls and the gates and, and such. So you can see that. But again, these dynasties were, and, and I think it's, a lot of it's rooted on pride, but God used that to his advantage. You know, Romans thought they would never die. And actually the Romans lived far, far longer than the United States have, has existed on to now. But these, you know, 
it's, it's achievements of men. Look at us, we're the Romans. Nobody could beat us. Well, eventually they disintegrated from the inside. You look at the Greeks, you look at the Persians, but they were meticulous record keepers. They really thought that they were going to live forever. Uh, and to our benefit, we, we get to understand how ancient peoples existed. How do we duplicate the shields and the helmets and the, and, and the, uh, the insignias on their uniforms because we found them, you know? Uh, it's pretty fascinating. So, <laughs> you know, today in our enlightened technological society, we lose documents. Uh, I don't know how that happens, but back in the day, <laughs> you know, we could, we could keep, we, we could have documents from thousands of years, but today we're so smart and stuff gets lost and whatever. Anyway, <laughs> this is where we go. Verse 27. Now, at the dedication, and it's funny because today, our arrogant and hubris uh, in, in our society, we look back and uh, people think that, oh, they're primitive, primitive people. The stuff they were able to do without computers and earth-moving equipment and stuff was fantastic. The leverages they used, the Egyptians used sand as hydraulics. I mean, I can go on and on about ancient peoples and what they did and how they built and without computers, really. Computers, what do they do? They think for us. We put stuff in there and it does it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, but back then, they, they, it was all brain power. So I'm actually impressed with their civilizations. Verse 27, it says, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication. They're dedicating this wall, right, that they built with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So we have some dedication going on. Now, the Levites here are called on to do worship, right? To lead in song. And what do we usually know the Levites do? Well, they help the priests. They get involved in the ministry of the temple. And, and they teach. You know, this is a side of the Levites that we normally don't see. And I just have to say this. In ministry, you have to be co- become what's, what I call a generalist. You know, when you do God's ministry, you're a generalist. Basically, you just go and fill a void or fill an emptiness that God says, go fill. You know, Nehemiah could have said, you know what, Lord, I, listen, I, I, got, I got a pedicure. I'm here in the king's court. I mean, I, I'm, I'm here to look good and to take care of the king, and, and everything's done for me. And God said, go, Nehemiah. He could have said no, but he did. He went. He became a military leader. He became a construction leader, a, 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 a job site foreman. He became a trek leader. Nehemiah did all these things that he had no experience in. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. God calls you to do something, do it. You know what I'm saying? But I'm not qualified. Great. Those are, that's the prerequisite. I'm not qualified. That's just the attitude I want from you. And it's true. In ministry, though, you become a generalist. Well, I can't do that. Why not? I'm sure God can... He'll fill you if he needs you to do that. There's really nothing that you don't do. I'll come back to the whole purification thing at the end. I want to table that for a moment. Verses 28 through 29, uh, the singers even had their own like little villages. That probably must have been a neat thing to be their neighbors and hear them singing and doing worship. It's like here on a Monday night when Pastor Paul has the worship team and 
And somebody comes into the building, oh, that's really nice. What is it? It's worship practice. You know, so, so the, the worshipers uh, had their little places where they would practice and they would worship together. And I think what's really cool is that David Guzik says the common thread was that they worshiped. You see, and I've, I've said this before, there's a big difference between singing and worship. You can sing a song, you can sing to God and all this stuff, but there's really a different level when you sing and you're worshiping God and you're bringing others into worship. I'm sure Pastor Paul could do a better job than me explaining this. Damien Kyle speaks of the difference between true worship and a soulish worship experience of singing and emotion. We can make ourselves believe anything about ourselves. We can work ourselves up into a frenzy, up or down, but the bottom line is that you know, you could go to schools to learn how to, to sing and supposedly do worship. But true worship has to come from a devotion to God. There's a lot of people who sing Christian music, not necessarily doing worship. There's a big difference. Verse 31, So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall. Now, I'm going to tell you the dimensions of the wall. This is pretty fascinating. So I brought the leaders of Judah up. Get up onto the wall. What do you mean a wall? We think of a sheetrock wall. There's no room for me to stand. You know, I, I look at my house. My cat can do it, but I can't, and I'm not going to try it. These cats can do anything. They're like the karate kid, the way they do their... All right, so let's go back to verse 31. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs, one of which went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, namely Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zechor, the son of Asaph, and his brethren, Shemaiah, Azrael, Melali, Gilali, Mai, Nethananiel, Judah, and Hanani with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. By the fountain gate in front of them, they went up the stairs of the city of David, on the stairway of the wall, beyond the house of David, as far as the water gate eastward. If we could put up that image, um, and this, a few Sundays ago, I, I talked about the building of the wall, and I'll, I'll point to that in a second. But basically, the people were on the wall. Interesting. Today, and, and this was before airplanes and bombers and stuff like that, the wall protected your city. When airplanes were invented and they learned how to drop a bomb from an airplane, all bets were off. Now, you needed your own airplanes to keep those, you know, you saw World War II, World War I, very interesting, innovative technology that changed the world. So, and then travel, of course. So what you have is the people were on the wall. Now, the wall... And, and these walls were often jagged looking like this. Uh, they would encompass a city. They would start, there would be an old portion of the wall. And then they would expand the wall. So you would see from an aerial view, it would be kind of jagged. But even today, the wall of Jerusalem, which still stands, is 2.5 linear miles. So when you do a, a perimeter, you get 2.5 miles of this wall. An average height of 40 feet, which meant... That's pretty big. That's tall, taller than the peak of the ceiling. That's uh, pretty, pretty high. Remember, protection. I and mean, this was built a long time ago. It's interesting. The Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall today, was part of the old wall, right? That was, that was knocked down by the Romans. Uh, and these were built in different times. 
So you had an average of 40 feet high, with some portions of the wall were even higher, depending on if they were uh, encompassing or compensating for a valley or a ravine or a down. You know, the earth is not perfectly flat. I mean, what I mean is the geography in any particular area, they had to compensate for it. Uh, the width of the wall, now check this out, on the top of the wall was 8.2 feet wide. 8.2 feet wide. That's pretty wide. So people could walk back and forth. You could have marching. The walls of Babylon, they were so massive and great, they were even wider than that. They would have chariots that would run across and do patrols. The watchmen were in chariots. Pretty impressive. That's why the Persians were able to, they had it to defeat the Babylonians. They went under the wall when they, when they diverted the river. Pretty impressive. Because they weren't going to breach that wall. The thing was massive. They waited for everybody to be drunk in a big party, and they diverted the river. They went underneath, and the Babylonians were shocked. Well, how'd they get in here? Well, they went under. It's too late now. You're under arrest. <laughs> you know, so we're taking you captive. Um, so 8.2 feet wide. In some walls, there were apartments built into the walls. So if you were, had the adventurous spirit, I mean, I don't know. Is this something that you want? Your window would be out front, and, oh, there's an advancing army coming. <laughs> Look, I'm going to be the first one that's going to get an arrow. But some people like to live in those apartments, and they lived within the wall. A lot of business was done within the city gates. Very different than what we have today. But I just love to bring you back. I love the historical aspect of it. So, <laughs> so the people went on the wall. They rejoiced. They went in different directions. They had uh, their ensemble. They sang. They praised. A few things. Number one, it was a long, difficult project. There was a lot of attacks, insults, stopping of the project. When the, when the walls finally got built, the people were rejoicing. And check this out, and I think I look at ministry like this too. The people got to see the fruit of their labor. They were standing on top of the finished project. Now remember in chapter 4 that the enemies of God, when they were building the wall, said, if a fox goes up on that wall, the whole thing's going to collapse. They mocked God, the enemies of God. They weren't doing any mocking now because it was able to support these entourages and, and it was pretty impressive. You know, I look at Western Christianity sometimes and the attitude is I'm going to go to the church building and then I'm going to go home. Well, if you look at the themes of the Scripture, Old and the New Testament, take ownership of your ministry. Take ownership of your church. I got news for you. The deed to this building doesn't have my name on it or any of the pastors here, has your name on it. It's Calvary Chapel Crossfields. You know, in those days, they took ownership of their ministry. This place is your place. See something wrong, let me know there's a leak. You know what I'm saying? Um, see something on the floor, pick it up. Um, you, wanna, you hear about a need in one of the ministries, I want to sign up for that. Sign up for that. It's a wonderful thing. So, the second thing is that, if you remember, a lot of, and the, a lot of the mockery had to do with there was rubble, you know. The, there was literally garbage in the streets. The walls were broken down. Some of it was turned to powder. Um, notwithstanding, God allowed the people to take that rubble and rebuild the walls and make it strong. I want to read something to you in Isaiah 61.3. This is a, actually a famous passage that Jesus quoted up to two and then closed it when he speaked about himself being the, the Messiah. But in Isaiah 61, you know, speaking about God's role, speaking about what the Messiah would do, and then a future dispensation, and it says, 
that, that he would comfort all those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. How do you do that? Ashes? What, what are ashes? You, fire is an amazingly like water, very powerful. You put, to turn up the temperature hot enough, it'll melt rocks. That fire is, is that destructive. A lot of things, when they're burned, turn to ashes. That's the end product. There's nothing you can do with it except for God. It says God will give them beauty for ashes. Think about your own life. Think about something you walked in, a burden that you've been carrying, the ashes that you're carrying, that you're, you're going through life holding your ashes. You know what? God can give you beauty for ashes. Give him a chance. Trust him. He says the oil of joy for mourning. These things are polar opposites. Mourning, death, depression. He's going to give you the oil of joy. He did it for these people. You think he's going to forget us? He still has us going. Jesus died for us. Why? Why would he stop? The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And people do that. They walk around in life, and you can see it. Go out into a public place. Spirit of heaviness. Some people are just existing through life. That might be you this morning. And I'm not here to, to pick on you. I'm, I'm here to encourage you. To say that God can give you this beauty for ashes. He did it back then. You know, God breathed life into this work of ministry. He showed the people that he was in this project from the very beginning. You know, God's timing is not our timing, and we tend to think that he's forgotten about us when things go on for weeks, for months, oh, for years. I've been living in this situation for years. You know, that can be very difficult. But trust him. Verse 38. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. <laughs> it's kind of cool. They started in one place, and they, one was, went clockwise, the other one went counterclockwise, and they kind of met. And I was behind them with half the people on the wall going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate. Remember, when I, when I taught this with that image, I showed you the different gates and they're being named again. I'm not going to go over it again. Uh, above the fish gate, the tower of Hananiel, the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. So the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God likewise I and the half of the rulers with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minjamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets. Also, Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Johananan, Malshajah, Elam, and Ezer. The singer sang loudly with Jezrahiah as their director. And that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. When it says God has made them, I always like to go back into the Hebrew. Some people will misunderstand that. He didn't force, you can't force somebody to be happy and joyful. He made them in, in the fact that he filled them. He helped them. He facilitated their, them. You see what I'm saying? And they, they could do nothing. I tell you this, sometimes I just go out and I just pray and I think about my life. I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a celebrity. Let me tell you something, I've got a good life. You know, the Lord has rescued me from my own sins some 25 years ago. Where would I be today, Heather, honey? <laughs> you know, where would I be? She, she knew me, we were dating. Um, did God save me from myself? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I don't know what, where I would be. So, just, it's just a wonderful thing. The shouts of joy were heard from afar off, and everyone participated in it, Right? 
When was the last time we got excited for the things of God? And I don't mean manufactured in church to make it look good. I mean, really. You know, has the mundane things of life caused us to compartmentalize God into a little small soundproof room in our hearts? Think about it. What about the mundane routines in the Christian culture? God's compartmentalized. He's in, in a box. He's in a room somewhere. And we let him out when we, and I'm being facetious, we let him out when we want to pray about something and we need something from him. I'll tell you something. God hasn't called us to be the Eeyore Christians. Remember Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore, why are you a Christian? Well, Pooh, Jesus did die for my sins. Therefore, I'm so happy. Eeyore, you don't sound really convincing. I mean, so I just love this, this, you know, this excitement, this shouting for joy. And honestly, nothing should stop us from rejoicing in the Lord. Well, it's not socially acceptable. Well, my friends will think I'm weird. Well, they'll think I'm a fundamentalist. Who cares? Enjoy your time with the Lord. Verse 44. And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites. The Ju- for Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. You know, I just thought of something. They, people had to be trustworthy. They have all this stuff, all this money, all this food, all this, you know, today you give the government millions of dollars in this fund and that fund and they take it out of this fund and they put it and they just do this stuff. Some of these things are like slush funds. And why is it that a lot of our politicians are worth millions of dollars? And I don't mean 10 million, I mean 100 million and more. They come into maybe a a business person, a, a meager living, they leave politics and they're filthy rich. And then there's money missing from accounts. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? And then they think we're the weirdos because we want people to be submitted to God if they're gonna rule over the people. Well, if, if, if there's no guidance by the Ten Commandments, there's no guidance by the Spirit of God, you're just going to go into that saying, well, listen, now I'm an elitist. I'm going to tell these people what they want to hear, and I'm going to take their money. And I'm going to be filthy rich, me and, my parent, me and my family. But these people had to be trustworthy. Trustworthy. Right? Well, listen, I can't stop there. How many scandals do you see in the church? It's, you know, I have a friend who's a news junkie, and he's always sending me another thing about some church, and... I'm like, stop sending me these things, you know what I'm saying? It's depressing because it just gets out into the news and it just makes the church look like it's no different than the political world. Very sad. 45, both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon, his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. You know, there's, there's a lot, again, about spiritual separation, consecration, and basically this was something where, uh, like the priests... This is interesting because in the Old Testament, it was more outward. In the New Testament, it's more inward. And we can learn so much. I, I question any Christian ministry that discards the Old Testament. We see a basis. We see types. We see foundations. We see a shadow. And in the New Testament, it's revealed. You know, the Old Testament's revealed. 
But in the, in the right, the Old Testament, so the priests would, they, they would have to be, in a sense, clean before they went before God. They would have to have a sacrifice for their own sins. They were constantly washing their hands, you know, symbolic of having clean hands. Um, the items were washed. They were blessed. They were anointed. And it was this idea of consecration, purification, separation. Sometimes people, and you, there might be a handful here this morning, we always have people that come into our church maybe for the first time or come in from the, the neighborhood. You might come in here and you might say, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm still doing this. I just did this last night, meaning something that's, I'm, I'm not holy, I, I feel uncomfortable, I feel like I, I don't belong here. Forget that. You've got to come to Christ. Let Christ let me tell you something. If I had to clean up <laughs> before I came to Christ, I'd still be in the world. <laughs> so, and, and I'm not completely clean. I still sin and still have to repent for my sins. So let Christ do the work. Don't have that attitude. You know, don't beat yourself up and say, I'm never coming back because these people seem so perfect and, and I know me. Well, how many other people are saying that at the same time? You know? Come to Christ. See, the purification happens from within. You're filled with God's Holy Spirit. He does the work slowly. It's a wonderful thing. Because honestly, I can't do it. We can't do it. Give it up to the Lord. So you see the difference between consecration, holiness, Old Testament versus New Testament. Listen, sacrifice. The Israelites sacrificed big time. This was a, a whole life change for the Israelites. The whole, you know, and I see this too, that even today people get, they get used to dysfunction. And they, they actually operate in dysfunction. Okay? Here, God wanted to come in and he wanted to shake things up. But, he, but it was a positive thing. He wanted the people to be blessed. He wanted them to have joy, which they didn't have before. But, it, but, but there were changes that had to occur. So there was major life changes, major sacrifice for the Israelites. But I, I say this, God doesn't call us to sacrifice so he can hurt us. He calls us to sacrifice so he can help us. Okay? wasn't just for the Israelites. It still applies today. may mean God is going to call you to give up something for him. Or it may be something simple as God calling you to sacrifice your comfort zones because he wants to do a work in you. He wants to bring you to the next level. And i got to tell you, in our flesh we resist that. Well, I, I come to church. I'm faithful to my spouse. I give when I can. I have good attendance. I'm comfortable with that. That's comfort zones. God may call you to come out of that because maybe he's instilled a gift in you, a spiritual gift that he wants to use to glorify himself. And I got to tell you, there's no greater joy that when we look out at the, at the church and we see people change and they come up and they talk about improvements in their lives. It's just exciting. It's incredibly exciting. I want to leave you with one scripture and then we'll close. Romans 12, 1 through 2. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy or set apart, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Why do we come to church? Well, because I felt guilty because, you know, I was on vacation and I haven't been here in a while. And that's not the answer. Why do we come to church? To worship God and to know His will for our lives with His Word and through prayer. That's it. 
Can I tell you something? I'm not loyal to a denomination. I'm not even loyal to Calvary Chapel. It's, it's where we are right now. I'm loyal to Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? The whole denominational thing is it's fine, and I don't criticize anybody, but it gets into this party spirit. It's almost like now we're Republicans and Democrats fighting with each other. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you're a Presbyterian. I can't fellowship with you. Come on. Well, we're, we're Calvary. We're better than everybody else. No, that's not true either. So thousands of years since this book was written, God still has a will and a plan for his people. And that's us, folks. That's us. Holy Spirit's still here. He still seals people. He still fills people. It's an amazing thing. My prayer is that we would seek his will, obey for our own lives, and understanding that sacrifice comes with it. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.